So before mobile devices took over our lives, people used to do in-person activities with each other. <laughs> One of those activities was puzzle building. People used to actually sit around for hours and put together jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> now, I don't know what your strategy is. My strategy is always to start with the edges, right? That's a winning strategy. Thank you. Feel validated. So imagine having to put together a 3,000-piece jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the puzzle box. You don't even know what it's going to be. The picture on the puzzle box is like a roadmap. It puts each combination of pieces that you're trying to connect into a larger context. You can know what you're looking for when you're putting two pieces together because you can see the finished product on the box. And you can know that you're working towards a bigger picture, a bigger vision. And that's especially important when you're working with other people, right? Because you want to make sure you're all working towards the same vision. The New Testament has a word for this. The word is telos. That's the word in Greek that means like goal or aim. It's the word where we get, uh, in English, we get the word uh, telephone and telescope, right? Because it's, it's a thing that you're looking for, the thing that you're aiming at. It's the big picture. And it's this big picture that we're going to see in this morning's text. Because when we talk about purposefully seeking the renewal of, of our city, that's the third emphasis, the third priority of our mission, when we talk about doing that, it's important that we, uh, that we know what the bigger picture is that we're working towards. Because seeking the renewal of our city is like working on the most complex, three-dimensional, real-world puzzle. And so our churches, our neighborhoods, our cities, they are intricately overlapping systems populated by millions of people. That's a big puzzle. One of my professors in seminary, he wrote a book called The Cat and the Toaster. The basic thesis of it is that uh, complex systems like cities and churches operate more like cats than toasters. They're more like living organisms. Different systems that give life to the whole city are delicately interrelated. You can't simply rip one system out and start working on it to fix it you have to operate on it like, like it's still part of the whole. So you have to be very careful. This is very important because some churches, well-meaning churches, have these well-meaning interventions into the city and they can cause more harm than good. That can happen. So we need to see the bigger picture that God has already printed on the puzzle box if we're going to purposefully seek the renewal of our city. This bigger picture that we're talking about this morning is related to justice. And this theme is, uh, this is the theme of our new series. We started a new series last week. It's called Love in Public. It comes from that quote from Dr. Cornell West. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. So last week we tra transitioned from the Adore series, which was focusing on the second mission priority, passionately loving God, and we transition to this third mission priority, purposefully seeking the renewal of our city. And we learned last week that the connection between the two is that when you passionately love God, you develop a love 
for those whom love, God loves. That's the transitive property of love, right? When you're in a loving relationship with someone, you inevitably love the things that they love. And when we passionately love God, we passionately love those whom God loves. So, um, this week we're going to be focusing on what is justice? Lots of people get this part about loving people. They get that. But they don't understand justice. Not all, not all Christians are working with the same picture on the puzzle box. The same picture of justice. So imagine working on a massive jigsaw puzzle with dozens of other people and everybody's working with a different picture on their puzzle box. When, you're, when you're, your group runs into another group and, you're, and your puzzle pieces have to line up, they're not going to line up because they're working with different, bigger pictures, different ultimate visions. So we need a unified vision of what justice is. And that's why this week I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide a unified vision. I'm calling this message Shalom Justice. And we're going to look at several texts. We're going to look at some texts from the, from the Old Testament, look at some texts from the New Testament, but before we dive into our first text, would you join me and we'll pray for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, you are the one who reveals things. You know the mind of God and you are the spirit of truth. As we look into the scriptures this morning, we ask for your ministry of illumination to feed our vision of the big picture. Help us to see justice the way that you see justice. Open our hearts and our minds to see what you're up to in the world. And move us by your spirit to join you in that mission. This we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so to establish the overall theme of the biblical narrative, you kind of got to start at the beginning. So... The biblical narrative begins with this beautiful picture. It's kind of a poetic ideal. It's an account of God's relationship with creation. The story isn't about necessarily about the material origins of the universe as much as it's about how human beings are created to live with each other and with God. And the story is about creation being entrusted to human beings by God to steward it and to represent God's loving care and authority in the world. This is a story about harmony. It's about wholeness. It's about human beings being rightly related to one another and to God. And God provides for humanity's every need, and humanity has this noble and good purpose. Humanity also has companionship and love. And the state of all of this can be summarized, can be encapsulated in one Hebrew word, shalom. That's what shalom is. It's all of those things. Harmony and wholeness and provision, abundance, purpose, being rightly related to God and others. Shalom is that Hebrew word that we often translate peace, but it's so much more rich than that, so much more beautiful than that. The first time I started to begin to think, to think about shalom was when a professor and a mentor introduced me to this book by Cornelius Plantinga Jr. called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Here's how Plantinga talks about shalom. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, 
but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs, our needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's an easy summary of shalom, the way things ought to be. And I can still remember the moment when um, I was on my way to class and my professor said this to me. She said, TC, I think we need to rethink the way we think about sin. Rather than thinking about sin as law-breaking, we need to think about sin as shalom-breaking. And this was coming from a Pentecostal. I was like, wow, that's deep. So the big picture is shalom. But this shalom has been vandalized by sin. And we see this throughout the biblical narrative. Our first text has a central metaphor that, that you see throughout the Hebrew prophets of this shalom that's, that's God's dream of restoring the shalom vandalized creation. It comes from Isaiah. You can also find it in Micah and Joel. Here's, here's the Isaiah version. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Remember, na nations is ethnic groups. Remember that. Not national boundaries, ethnic groups. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for all peoples, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a really central metaphor in the Old Testament. Swords being beaten into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, no more war. So this mountain house of the Lord is a dwelling place for God and humans together in harmony. It's an echo of the Garden of Eden, and it's a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a return to that state of shalom. No longer will nation rise up against nation, and the weapons used to wage war will be so unnecessary that they'll be repurposed into farming equipment. That's a beautiful thing. I like how um, Plantinga reimagines this for the modern world. Now, Keep in mind, this is his, you know, his cultural perspective, so some, not all of this will apply, but, but I, think it's, I think it's funny. This would include, for example, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. And then with good humor, all around, the person with more natural competency in that area of crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. <laughs> yeah, that's good. 
Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which streets are cleaned on Wednesday. But nobody's, to nobody's surprise, they would always tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other political officials. Public telephone books would, never, would, would always be left intact. <laughs> I guess that was a problem in his day, phone books being torn up. Uh, highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be in serene, would be serene on inner city streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. And middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hopel? Is that an actual place? Hopel? And would seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. I like that part. And all around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people would sit on their porches, read these accounts, savor them, and call each other and talk about them. <laughs> That's his cultural perspective on Shalom. I don't like telling this story because it dredges up some strong emotions for me, but there's a story in my past that I think illustrates this, this, uh, this kind of shalom and the way that shalom can be broken and restored. So I'm going to tell you this story, but it, it, it riles me up a little bit. Several years back, when we were living in Boston, Oshida took our minivan to our local muffler shop. This is where we always got the oil changed. We'd been going there for like seven years. We knew the manager really well. This was our neighborhood shop. But apparently, he'd like retired or been, re, you know, been transferred or something because there was a new manager. And we didn't know this manager. So anyway, she got the oil changed and she took off on the interstate to go to the mall. I think she was taking, a, she was taking Trinity to like American Girl doll or something like that. And while they're on the highway, they start hearing a knocking coming from the engine. And then the engine overheats and it just seizes up. Luckily. She was able to get into like a Sears service station somehow, miraculously, and they checked it out and immediately said, all your oil drained out, the filter was not properly replaced, and your, your engine's fried, totally destroyed. And so this led to calling the shop, and they said they would take care of it, they'd come get it, and everything would be taken care of. So we waited a few days. We hadn't heard anything, so I called to follow up and say, you know, how's, how's it going? And they said that they were not going to take responsibility. This led to uh, a long, painful, and infuriating fight with the shop's insurance company. And this went on for 11 weeks. When I tell you that this was like insurance hell, I'm not exaggerating. I didn't know that insurance companies could talk to you like that over the phone. I mean, I got talked to in ways I was like, wow. You know, I was, seeking, I, I was infuriated. Um, they even lied at one point, like blatantly lied. They brought out an insurance adjuster who was going to say that our engine had a lot of problems before it, you know, it pulled into the, the shop, right? And they were going to get the, the Sears station to sign off on this, and the Sears station wouldn't do it. In fact, they notified me that they were trying to, to lie about this thing. It was horrible. I 
at the end of this, uh, when they had exhausted all of their means of not taking responsibility, and they knew that they were going to have to pay up, I was, I wanted some revenge. I was vengeful. I, I wanted this whole company to go down. I was like, I want them to suffer the way that I suffered for the last 11 weeks, you know? And, and I thought what I wanted was justice. I even called the, the campaign, like, Justice for the Moors, you know? Like, we had a hashtag. It was great. But I realized that my concept of justice wasn't the same as the Bible's concept of justice. Justice is one of those words that you can say to a room full of people and everybody will have their own concept of what justice means. And I think that after you know, 11 weeks of insurance hell, my concept of justice was payback. It was retribution. It was the retributive view of justice. And a lot of people mistakenly believe that that's the primary view of justice in the Bible. In fact, just this last week, I finished a book on preaching the book of Romans. And this was a book about how different views on preaching the book of Romans. And two out of the four most popular views on preaching Romans have this retributive view of justice. I was shocked. I was like, two out of four of the most popular views. So, you know, a lot of people think that the Bible teaches that justice is getting what you deserve. Getting or not getting what you deserve. Neither of those two views in this book talked about being made whole. Neither of them. And if I wanted to, I could have fought to punish that company. I really could have. I could have got a lawyer. I could have said, this is my pain and suffering that I've endured for the last 11 weeks. I want some payback, right? But, and I was really angry. But in the end, what I realized I wanted and what, and what I really wanted to embody for my family and for our community was justice as being made whole. So in the end, what we wanted from them and what we got from them was a refurbished engine that had the same amount of miles as our old engine. We basically were back to like square one with our van. And we got reimbursed for the Ubers that we took like for 11 weeks, right? So we just basically got back to square one, but we were made whole. And in this country, I think a lot of people think of, uh, of justice like this. When people think of justice, they think of Lady Justice, the blindfolded lady with a sword in one hand and scales in the other. This is supposed to represent, for some reason, this is supposed to represent objectivity, right? She's, she's objective, she's impartial. It's supposed to symbolize meeting out punishment fairly. But is that really the legacy that we have in this country, if we're honest? If we're honest about the justice system in America, do we get objectivity and fairness? <laughs> Rhetorical question, but thank you. Jonathan Walton is an African-American InterVarsity Area Director in New York. Uh, he's from Virginia, but now he lives in New York. And he's written a book called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. And Walton, I think, puts his finger right on the disconnect between uh, that picture of justice and what we actually experience in America. Throughout U.S. history, wealthy, connected white males compose the only group that seems to escape blame and responsibility. Their rights are protected most consistently and often at the expense of other people and the planet. 
Some people will say, yeah, but that's not how the system was designed. The system was designed to provide equal justice. Was it though? By who? <laughs> that's right. By who? So Walton goes on. The framers of the US government only included white land-owning men of good social standing as enfranchised citizens. They did not believe that all humans were created equal and therefore had no intention of entitling all people to equal treatment. This country's actual history and lived reality reveals that this declaration of equality is the opposite of what was actually intended by its authors and experienced by natives, women, and minor minorities. So you know that while, while the framers were writing all men are created equal, they owned slaves. That's a pretty big hypocrisy right there. There are courthouses all over the United States with statues of Lady Justice out front, but Brian Stevenson has a different view of American justice. He's the founder of um, the Equal Justice In Initiative, and he's the visionary behind uh, what's called the National Lynching Museum. Have you heard of this? So he's the visionary behind that. He's an accomplished lawyer. He's argued before the Supreme Court several times, and he's the author of a best-selling book called Just Mercy. One of the things he's most famous for is for pointing out to white Americans what most minorities already know, which is we have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. That's the reality. Just this week, we saw a few examples of this, of the justice system in America. In Sacramento, the Clark family attends one of our sibling churches. The Clark family attends uh, Bayside Covenant Midtown. And this week, the Clark family was forced to grieve all over again the loss of their son because it was announced by the DA that the police who killed their son, who was unarmed and was not committing a crime, they were not going to be held responsible. No criminal charges were going to be pressed. So these two police officers made themselves judge, jury, and executioner on a dark night in Stephon Clark's grandmother's backyard. And he's gone now. He's dead. And he wasn't really a threat. And I saw an interview with a black community organizer in Sacramento who said nobody was surprised by this verdict. Can you believe that? Nobody was surprised. What happened to Lady Justice? Where's the impartial, blindfolded lady? And actually, this has happened here in the Twin Cities several times. Not that long ago. This week we also saw the first sentencing of a high-profile case where the President of the United States' former campaign manager uh, was sentenced. He's a wealthy white man accused of several quote-unquote white-collar crimes and he was found guilty on five charges, laundering millions of dollars into the United States from Ukrainian politics, not paying taxes on those funds, and then falsifying tax returns and bank fraud. And the federal sentencing guidelines for these crimes were 19 to 24 years. And he was sentenced to 47 months, just shy of four years. Now, to put that in context, a, de a public defender in New York tweeted, for context, 
on Manafort's 47 months in prison, my client yesterday was offered 36 to 72 months in prison for stealing $100 worth of quarters from a residential laundry room. That puts those 47 months in context, doesn't it? My point here is not to relitigate these cases. So don't go home saying, Tisa got real political this morning. Here's my point. My point is, what passes for justice in this country is not justice. That's my point. When we talk about this blindfolded lady with a sword and a scales, that's not justice. That's supposed to, it's designed to symbolize for us objectivity. Justice is blind. But God's vision of justice isn't blind. And it doesn't have a sword. God's vision of justice acknowledges that there is inequality in society and calls upon those of us who enjoy privilege and calls upon the whole society to demonstrate God's love for the most vulnerable in that society. It doesn't turn a blind eye. It doesn't pretend like it's obje objective. It's very subjective. God sees those who are in need. God sees those who are marginalized. God sees those who are oppressed. God is not trying to pretend like he's fair and balanced. God is not trying to pretend like he's, obje he's objective. God's justice is for the disadvantaged. And it's fighting for those who are left behind or trampled underfoot. Listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. This is uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, sitting on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Act with justice and righteousness. What does he mean by that? Act with justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who's been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Or shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then through the gates of this house shall enter kings, who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not heed these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. So what God means by justice and righteousness is seeing the oppressed, is seeing those who are marginalized, the alien, the orphan, the widow, the innocent. And it didn't mean wearing a blindfold and pretending to be objective. And it didn't mean holding a sword in one hand and scales in another. It meant seeing the plight of the most vulnerable members of society. And it's precisely this vision of justice that Jesus preaches when he is announcing his messianic campaign. When he's saying, I am the one you've been waiting for, this is what he talks about. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news 
to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus' mission is the mission of Jesus' people and those who are part of Jesus' communities. And it's to embody this vision of justice. The vision of justice as shalom. And this is the third emphasis of our mission as a local Jesus community. To purposefully seek the renewal of our city. This is about advocating for the, for the empowerment and the inclusion and the human rights of those who are on the margins. And those who are created to bear God's image. Another voice that I've been listening to in addition to Brian Stevenson and Jonathan Walton, I've been listening to Dominique Gilliard. Dominique Gilliard serves as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Justice, Love Mercy, Do Justice mission priority of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's also the author of a new book called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Here's what he says about God's justice. Scripture consistently reveals that restoration not punitive punishment, is at the heart of God's justice. Biblically, justice is a divine act of reparation where breached relationships are renewed and victims, offenders, and communities are restored. Justice, therefore, is about relationships and our conduct within them. Justice asks, how is righteousness embodied and exuded in how I live in relation to God, neighbor, and creation. In fact, scripture could be read as the narrative of God's restorative justice unfolding in the world. This is critical for you and I to internalize. God's vision of justice is a social vision of a restored world. It's a world where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a, it's a new heaven and a new earth that's saturated in shalom. And we have in the New Testament a glimpse of this new world. John of Patmos sees a picture of this new world in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. So it's into this vision of a society of shalom that we are called as Roots Covenant Church. That's the vision that you and me are called to embody in microcosm, in this community. We, we live this way among ourselves and then it spills out. It pours out into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into the cities we live in, into the world. This is how we're called to embody love in public. 
we're guided by this big picture. This is the big picture on the puzzle box. Our families intact, flourishing, our community flourishing, our neighborhoods flourishing, and then the whole world. I want to close this message by asking you to pray with me because our purpose is not just to understand these things intellectually. It's not just to affirm them and say, yes, I agree with that. Our purpose here this morning is to commit ourselves to this vision. God is not just aiming at our, our minds with the scriptures, with the word. God is aiming at our whole selves. So, I want you to pray with me a prayer of commitment. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. So would you pray with me this morning? God of justice and mercy, you are the God who delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. You are the God who watches over the alien, the orphan, and the widow, all of the most vulnerable members of society. You are the God who in Christ came to preach good news to the poor. We confess that we live in a society that does not embody your justice. We confess that we have not always sought to embody your justice in our own lives. We repent and we ask you to give us your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would lead us and guide us to be a Jesus community that embodies shalom justice in our families, in our church, in our neighborhoods, cities, and the world. We ask that you would spark our creativity and imaginations to find new ways to advocate for the vulnerable among us and around us. We ask that you would give us your eyes to see them as you see them. And we ask that you would form us in your love so that we would love them with the same love that Jesus loves us. We want to be a people who honor you, who live in your love, and who are light and salt in this world. Would you fill us with your power? Would you fill us with your love? Would you fill us with your spirit? Have your way in our lives and have your way in this church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.